Welcome to the Christian Drummers Podcast, discussing the art of drumming to the glory of Almighty God. Howdy. Remember me? Probably not. My name's Johnny, and I pretty much sleep, eat, load drums in a truck, and drive around. When I have some free time, I do yard work. Occasionally, I podcast, so welcome to this one. In this episode of the Christian Drummers Podcast, we're going to begin a series on worship drumming, and I want to examine some of the foundational principles behind being a worship musician, starting with this, where do we worship? What is the environment in which we lead? After that, I'm going to talk about drum parts, and this will be a two-part series as well. Today, we're going to talk about learning drum parts as recorded when we do worship songs or um, even when we do, say, some singer-songwriters music or something like that. You know, why do you learn what's recorded or do you learn what's recorded and how much leeway do you have and why and where should you exercise that freedom? So let's jump in, assuming I remember how. Okay, so as I said, we're going to talk about the fundamentals and the principles and, say, the theory behind Christian worship and behind being a worship musician. When I was getting back into church, I was doing a whole lot of reading and study, and one of the things that I really just wanted to understand was worship. You know, what's going on, and um, what am I doing, where am I doing it, how am I doing it, Um, all of that sort of thing. And for this material, I'm going to rely heavily on the guidance that I was fortunate to receive, both from my good friend Kemper Crabb and from my bishop, Royal Grote. This is not new material, but a lot of it may be things that y'all have not heard before. Um, Sadly, these kinds of foundational things aren't really talked about much, and um, I hope to draw your attention to certain scriptures that you may not have considered before or had anybody explain in the way that we're going to talk about them. So, the first thing we're going to ask is, where do we worship? What's the environment in which we are leading by playing the drums in the band? Most of you are probably thinking, well, duh, in my church. I'm here at my local congregation. We're here in our building or in our church or our worship center, and I'm sitting behind the drums. Well, there's more going on than just that. And most of us think of it in terms of the way, well, of course, the Lord's present. When two or three are gathered in his name, there is he in the midst of them. But there's a special way that you can look at this that I think will have a lot of implications for your own worship life and the way that you approach what you do, especially if you lead worship in the churches. So to begin to answer this question... I want us to consider the text of John chapter 4. I'm sure that you have heard many, many people who are going to talk about worship go to John chapter 4 and talk about the Samaritan woman at the well. So I'm going to read a little bit of that text. I assume you're familiar with the whole story, 
So I'll just kind of jump in where she says to the Lord, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, before we start talking about spirit and truth, we have to understand that the woman was asking a question. Okay, it's an implied question, but she's asking a question. Keep in mind that our Lord had just confronted her on her sexual sin. She was kind of a serial adulteress, and she was fornicating with the man with whom she was living. He was calling her out on her sin, and she suddenly starts talking about worship. Now, a lot of commentators will say that she's suddenly changing the subject, but she's not changing the subject at all. She says to him, I perceive that you're a prophet. Why? Because he just demonstrated supernatural knowledge of her situation. And then she starts talking about where they worship and where Jesus worships. And you have to keep in mind that she's a Samaritan. Well, to a Samaritan who's kind of a half-breed Jew of the time, um, what does worship mean? Well, it means making sacrifices. And her question is, okay, you've called me out on my sin. Do I make my sacrifice here on this mountain? Or do I make my sacrifice in Jerusalem at the temple? Then Jesus answers that question. He doesn't change the subject. He doesn't answer the question she should have really asked or anything like that. Our Lord is answering her question when he says, that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, you have heard for a good long time that spirit means uh, your emotions, your heart, you know, and that truth means your intellect or your head. Well, that would be a really dumb answer to her question. And our Lord's not dumb. He wasn't telling her how to worship. He was telling her where. And that's a, common, um, that's a common way of interpreting that text. It kind of has its roots, according to Bishop Grote, in the writings of John Calvin. Calvin, in his commentary on John, um, he said, The worship of God is said to consist in the Spirit because it is nothing else than that inward faith of the heart which produces prayer and, next, purity of conscience and self-denial that we may be dedicated to obedience to God as holy sacrifices. So again, um, you know, for Calvin, in spirit simply meant faith in the heart, sincerity in the heart, that sort of thing. And then he goes on and talks about truth being freed from the shadows of the law, and also, more importantly for his commentary, freed from a lot of the extraneous rituals of uh, Romanism. 
And probably truth for Calvin would, would best be summed up in what people call the regulative principle of worship. You know, you're only doing that which the New Testament authorizes us to do without any other ritual or anything accompanying it. So spirit would be sincerity and truth would be conforming to what the New Testament reveals. And that has since morphed along the lines of revivalist thinking to mean your heart and your head. But again, that's not the answer to the question. One of the best ways to understand our Lord's statement about worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth is, first of all, that what he technically said was, true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in the truth. This is a Trinitarian statement. In his wonderful book, The Holy Trinity in Scripture, History, Theology, and Worship, Robert Letham writes this in his introduction, speaking of John 4. We recall, too, the words of Jesus to the Samaritan woman that the true worshipers will from now on worship the Father in spirit and in truth. How often have we heard this referred to inwardness in contrast to externals, to spirituality rather than material worship, to sincerity as opposed to formalism? Instead, with many of the Greek fathers, such as Basil the Great and Cyril of Alexandria, a more immediate and pertinent reference is to the Holy Spirit. All other references in John to Numa are to the third person of the Trinity, except probably two. And to the living embodiment of truth, Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. The point is that Christian experience of God in its entirety, including worship, prayer, or what have you, is inescapably Trinitarian. And since he referred to Basil and Cyril, I'd like to read a little bit of St. Basil to you from uh, his book on the Holy Spirit. Although paradoxical... It is nevertheless true that Scripture frequently speaks of the Spirit in terms of place, a place in which people are made holy. We shall demonstrate that even this figure of speech does not downgrade the Spirit, rather it glorifies Him. Words which normally have a physical meaning are frequently transposed to a spiritual plane by Scripture for the sake of clarity. For example, the psalmist says, Be to me a protecting God and a place of strength to save me. And in reference to the Spirit, God says, Behold, there is a place by me. Thou shalt stand upon the rock. This place is contemplation in the Spirit. And when Moses entered this place, God revealed himself to him. Only in this special place can true worship be offered. The law said, Take heed that you do not offer your burnt offerings at every place that you see, but at the place which the Lord shall choose. But what is a spiritual burnt offering but the sacrifice of praise? Where can we offer it? Only in the Holy Spirit. Where did we learn this? From the Lord himself. The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So think about this. It's in the Spirit that we are drawn into the presence of the Lord. Think of St. John in the Revelation saying he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, or immediately he was in the Spirit and he was caught up to see the visions that he saw in heaven, right? And think about how in Christ we're seated in the heavenlies. 
or in Christ, we offer our sacrifices. Or to even be regenerated and forgiven of our sins, we are said to be in Christ, a new creation. Right? So God himself is the environment of our worship. In the Spirit, by his power, in the Son, through whom you'll recall we have access to the heavenly court because he's the veil, we offer worship to God the Father. God, as it were, draws us into himself so that we can worship the Father in the Spirit and in the Son. Bishop Grote sums it up this way. Worship according to truth will always be offered by Christ and through Christ to God the Father. Consequently, it will always occur where Christ dwells, in the realm of the Spirit in heaven. That's why the ascension, friends, is such an enormous deal. That's why Pentecost was such an enormous deal. The time had come where true worshipers worship the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Ghost. Now, this has ginormous implications for what happens in a worship service. The things that we do, the things that we say, the things that we sing, the way that we play, how you approach preparedness for Sunday rehearsal, how you play the parts that you play, what you're thinking about, more importantly than anything else, what heart attitude am I bringing into that most holy presence? We'll talk more about that, but I just want you to think about that this week and um, study through that passage a little more. Look up the places in Scripture where we are said to be in Christ, what that means positionally. Think about how that works for our worship. Look up the passages about being in the Spirit, especially in the Revelation. What does it mean to be in the realm of the Spirit when when we are in Him and He lifts us up into, say, uh, the heavenlies, the place where God's essence is said to dwell? And think about what it might mean that you're actually really going there. And then we'll talk more about ascending into the heavenlies next time. And then we'll start working out what that means for playing the drums. It really matters. Okay, now we can bring this down to something a little less lofty and more drum-oriented. And we're going to start talking about the drum parts that you're going to play. For the sake of conversation, let's, let's just limit this scenario to you're playing in a worship band and you've been given some recordings of songs that you're going to play on Sunday. What do you do? Are you going to learn all the parts as is, exactly the way they were recorded? Or are you going to uh, kind of learn your idea of that same sort of groove or something? Or are you just going to get the flavor of the arrangement and wait for a rehearsal? 
Well, for starters, when you want to answer this question, you need to understand the situation you're in. What does the worship leader usually do? You know, do you learn things as is, or does he put his own spin on it? For example, one of my Sunday situations is one in which the leader will very often change not just the arrangement of the song, but the feel of the song. Faster, slower, a different groove. He wants the drums to do something different, a different rhythm in all the instrument parts, whatever. Oftentimes this is to better suit his vocal style, his playing style, what he thinks he can do better for the people to follow it. It might have something to do with um, if that particular congregation can stay with the arrangement enough to participate, maybe things like that. And on the other hand, I play someplace where I'm sure what's guiding the song selection and the arrangement choices has more to do with um, staying true to the recording because it's on the radio or it's been sold you know, through several resource providers or something like that. And it's going to be very important to basically recreate the recording because that is what's popular. And that, along with the fact that they use tracks and are going to be purchasing probably the actual recorded tracks from those providers, uh, that means that I'm going to pretty much need to play exactly what's on the record. Now, for what I do personally, I start with what's on the record in every situation. Whether I'm coming in cold to some people that I've never played with or the former situation that I described, or the latter situation that I described. If you give me an MP3 of this new Hillsong tune, and we're going to play it on Sunday, I'm going to write down exactly what's on that record, and that's what I'm going to play for starters. You know, when when we count off the, the first song, what's coming out of me is whatever came out of the record. Um, there's a lot of reasons for this, and... The first simply being that that's easier. You know, it's easier for me to just show up, prepare to do what's on the record, and then I can either add or subtract from there. Again, you know, if, if it's a situation where they're going to be playing to tracks, then obviously I'm going to have to do that. And, you know, it might, might be that you're syncing up to a video of the recording of the song or something like that. I've seen that happen. But for the place that I play where they use tracks, you know, as a matter of uh, course then I'm going to have to stick to that arrangement anyway. And what the instruments are playing on the tracks, they played to that one drum beat, right? So I'm going to have to know that or else it's just not going to work. And then again, just simply knowing the part that's recorded is a pretty stable platform from which I can add or subtract to my part as asked. But also, I want to consider this angle if you're tempted to always be somebody that changes what another drummer did. When somebody wrote and arranged this song, chances are they worked very, very hard on it and gave it a lot of thought. I don't know if you've been in these kind of situations, but sometimes people will have a pretty lengthy discussion about the kick drum pattern, you know? And so the way that that reacts with the lead vocal and the way that uh, the choices of whether or not to um, do this with the toms or that with the snare, you know, and, and how that interacts with everybody else's parts. Those were pretty carefully considered. I may not agree with those decisions, 
But again, they weren't my decisions to make. And so if we're going to do this song and we're going to do it justice, very often that means that I need to submit my will creatively to the will of the songwriter, the arranger, the producer, um, and the worship leader who decided to pick that song, right? And, and since I'm very often critical of people who alter too much the words or the music of a hymn writer, you know, I don't want to be hypocritical about that. I want to also honor the um, musical decisions that went into this recording if we're going to try to recreate it, right? Now, there are times that you can deviate, of course, and we'll talk more about that. But um, obviously, if your worship leader has decided, well, we're going to do this with a different feel, I want you to do this, I want you to play that, you follow that. But even in the context of the recording, there may be occasionally something you feel you can add or something you feel you can subtract that will help that song move a little better, as long as you're really not violating the... um, the arrangement of the drum part, if it will help the people to sing, it'll help people to participate, it will maybe draw the band a little tighter. But what you don't want to do is alter a drum part or uh, insist on your own drum part or something like that just so you can get your own um, creative jollies. That's not what we're here for. And you'll discover as you listen more and more to me, that's something I care a lot about because that is entertainment behavior. That's artiste behavior. That is um, kind of an insistence on one's own. And that has no place in the church. So really, I guess this was just a very lengthy discussion talking about learning exactly what's on the recording. That's just how I look at it. It makes my job easier. I don't often have a lot of time. Um, I think it respects what the um, producers of the music wanted to do. I think it best provides a worship leader with what he needs. And if he wants to change it, let him. And it's just simpler. There are many, many other ways that I can go about being creative on my instrument. And in a worship leading situation, that's not really what I'm being called to do. So what we'll talk about next time are those situations in which there's not a recording. And what ought to guide my creative process in terms of service to that music and service to a congregation that's going to participate in it? I don't know. I just play something cool. All right, my friends, let's conclude. I would really, really, really like to hear from you. I know that I'm not cranking these out very often, but I would really like to hear from you if you're a regular listener. You can email me at johnny at johnnydrums.com. You can look me up on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter as Johnny Drummer, no E in drummer, or whatever. Also, please rate and review me on iTunes. That really helps me to show up in the listings, and I would just like to know what you think. 
Now, shout outs. I want to talk about products this week. My first big shout out is to Shy Baffles. We just added those at Houston's First Baptist Church, and it has made my work there much more enjoyable. We used to be in an aquarium there, and Shy Baffles have allowed us to open up the drum set and let us actually be part of the band. If you're not hip to what they are, you need to visit shybaffles.com. They are plexiglass discs that you mount vertically on a cymbal stand in front of the cymbals so that you're still not letting those and the snare drum get into the vocal mics, but you're not in a bubble, so the drums can actually sound good. Isn't that a glorious thing? The other product I'd like to recommend is something that I've been using for a couple of years now, and that is the Quick Torque Bass Drum Cam by Eccentric Systems. Lucas was very kind to send me a couple to try out, and I never gave them back because they really added so much to the action, speed, and feel of my bass drum pedals. I prefer a strap drive pedal for its light feel and quick action, even though, you know, sometimes I step pretty hard. And what the quick torque does is it it increases the speed and the power of your pedal, but adds a lighter feel to that. So with very, very little effort, I get a lot of power and a quicker return on the beater, and I can play much, much faster. And it eliminates a lot of fatigue from those long gigs. So check out eccentricsystems.com, the quick torque pedal cam. It's available for pretty much any pedal on the market, and I can't recommend it highly enough. And finally, as always, let's wrap up this episode with a word of prayer. Almighty Father, thank you for the grace by which we may offer our gifts to you in the Spirit and in the Son. May we always do so in a way that pleases you and brings glory to your most holy name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.